Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Thank you for joining us on this beautiful Shabbat. Let's dig into today's message. We are in the final chapter of this epistle to the Hebrews. And last week we ended off at verse 3, and today we're going to continue in verse 4. And we're actually, ironically enough, we're not going to get through uh, verse 4. So technically speaking, we're only going to look at half of verse 4, because if we looked at the whole thing, well, that would just be too much. So we're not going to bite off more than we can chew today. Uh, with that said, let's get started. Verse 4, or at least part of it. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. Now, the term, as you, as you break into the Greek, adds a little bit of weight, if you will. Um, the term for marriage is gamos, but the, the, the root of that term is, refers, is gam, and it refers to binding. And I love that when you think of binding something together, as we're, as we're going to read about shortly in a moment, where you have a husband and a wife, they were at one point two, but now they're going to be bound together as echad. They're going to be one. And this is what we would call covenantal marriage, or this term as used here, gamas. And so the writer, he opens up in verse 4, with gamas, or marriage, and then he describes what it is. And he says, it's honorable. Now, in the Greek, it's tamias. And tamias refers to something of extraordinary value. Or, as we have it translated here, honorable. Or you could even, you could use the term precious. I mean, these are incredible. This is what marriage is. And if you really want to add some weight to this, all you need to do is go to First Peter and look at how Peter uses this term. As you go to chapter 1, and I think begins somewhere about 18, verse 18, Peter says, We haven't been redeemed with corruptible things, things like silver and gold, uh, not even from the aimless conduct or traditions of the fathers. No, what we've been redeemed with is the precious, or to me, us, the precious blood of Christ. And so you think about this, the very same term being used to describe what marriage is, it is tamias, it is, it is precious, is the very same term that Peter uses to describe the blood of Yeshua. Now, if, if that doesn't say something to you, I, I don't know what will. And so right off the bat, you know, the, the writer has my attention and could not have articulated what marriage is better. It is a weighty matter. It is pure. It is holy. It is what we would call God's design. And so to really uh, kick things off today, I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 1. Because this marriage thing, this design by God, it began at creation. And again, this is something about marriage that we need to step back and ponder and, and think about. Marriage was there at creation. Genesis 1, 27, we read this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so you look at this, that he is the one. It doesn't say he created just Adam. It says he created them. In other words, marriage began at creation. Continuing on, verse 28. Then God blessed, not him, singular, blessed them. And again, I tell you, this is explicitly in the context of marriage. And we know this because all we got to do is keep reading. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now. We know, just because of the rest of the Torah, that this is only speaking about the confines of marriage between a husband and wife, because only they can properly be fruitful and multiply. Certainly, the Lord is not suggesting, through fornication, let's go out and multiply. No, this is only in this context of this holy matrimony, this holy union of marriage. And jumping. Ahead here for a moment, Proverbs 18.22 says, 
He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, I, I juxtaposition this proverb with uh, Genesis one twenty-eight or one twenty-seven, one twenty-eight, because you need to recognize at every level, marriage is a God thing. It is a creation of God. It is an institution of God, which sanctifies it. It makes it holy. It is pure. It is tamias. It is precious. It is something of incredible value. Proverbs 19, verse 14, Houses and riches are an inheritance from fathers. Oh, but a prudent wife is from men? No, it's from the Lord. Okay, so it's a God thing. This is a product of God. And if it's a product of God, it is perfect. You think about that for a second. Marriage is perfect. The way God designed it, it is perfect. It doesn't mean man, woman can't corrupt it. But it means when we abide in it accordingly, according to his perfect plan, we are walking, we are embracing, we're experiencing that perfection. And so that's, that for me is an awesome thought. Going back to Genesis now, I want to go back and I want to go to chapter 2, verse 21. We're going to get the backstory behind what we read in Genesis 127 and 128. The backstory is this, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. This is one of the, the coolest things that you, at least for me, that I read in Genesis 2. One of the coolest things is Adam didn't go, God creates Eve or whatever. Adam doesn't make his journey go and, and, and get her and take her in marriage. No, no, no. God created her and he brought her to him. Now this is this is a fascinating aspect to God's perfect plan to understanding aspects of marriage. And of course this is going to carry over in a completely spiritual dimension of, you know, you think of Yeshua being the bridegroom and what does he say? No one can come unto me unless my Father who sent me draws him. The Father draws the bride and brings the bride to his son. Well, and this is exactly this picture that we have with Eve. She is being brought to Adam. This is God doing this. And so just a, a very, very cool thing. But continuing on, verse uh, 23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, or in Hebrew it would be Isha, because she was taken out of Ish, or man. Therefore, jumping, yep, moving to verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become basarachad, one flesh. And so there is something absolutely supernatural that takes place when God brings Eve to Adam. This is where you get into the gamas, the binding. This is where they are bound together, and they are no longer two, but they are one. And so something very magical, nay, I say deeply spiritual, happens. This, this is an incredible moment, if you will. And so here we get this picture of what marriage really looks like. Now, there's one thing that is said here that I really want to hone in on. It's a statement that says, a man leaving his father and mother. And this is part of understanding marriage. And to really help you appreciate what is actually being conveyed here in the Torah, I actually want to take you to the Apocrypha. I want to take you to the book of First Estrus. We're going to look at chapter 4 
it's actually going to cover this very passage. And in doing so, it's, it's going to give us a little bit of a revelation here and, and a, definitely a much better appreciation for what's being communicated. And the way this passage talks about marriage is absolutely phenomenal. And so let's go to First Esther's chapter 4, verse 14, and this is what we read. Gentlemen, it is, is not, and so he's going to give this litany of, of rhetorical questions, is not the king great? And are not men many? And is not wine strong? Who is it then that rules them or has the mastery over them? Is it not women? Women gave birth to the king and to every people that rules over sea and land. Moving on to verse 16. From women they came, and women brought up the very men who plant the vineyards from which comes wine. Women make men's clothes. They bring men glory. Uh, they bring men glory. Men cannot exist without women. And I know there are many women listening right now are saying, "Preach it, Daniel." And amen to that. As far as what is just said, we can't exist without women. Now, if there's any men with their weight and salt out there who are married, you know. Uh, we do not function without our wives. This is no mystery. This is no secret. I have no issue coming out with that. Uh, we are, desperately need our wives. We are a train wreck mess uh, without them. And I can certainly speak uh, for myself on that. Uh, so, amen. I know my wife is pretty excited uh, with this message. But the key thing is, is what the writers already he's laying out is something that's very important and that is traditionally biblical judaism the way that they looked at women was in a very exalted manner okay and and that that is important when you start to hear rhetoric or commentary like that from elizabeth Cady stanton who would actually come forth and actually said that the pentateuch or the torah uh, she knew of no other such books that were so degrading to women as the Torah. And so she would, as she read through, you know, the Pentateuch, uh, she was aghast by, and keep in mind, she's one of the pioneers for the women's liberation movement. But she was mortified by what she read because she walked away and said, all this does is degrade women. That is not true at all. If you're walking away from the Torah and that's what you've walked away with or from Scripture as a whole, that the book is just one big giant degrading of women, uh, you have not read it properly. And this is a perfect example of how biblical Judaism prior to Yeshua being revealed, and I, and I say that because we're, in, we're talking about first estrus, right? And so we're in the Apocrypha, the intertestamental period. The Jews who operated within the confines of the spirit of Torah, uh, they looked very, very favorably and with honor upon women, understanding this reality that without them uh, were nothing. This is, this is why God designed Eve. He designed her so that they could be joined together in this union, in covenantal marriage, and to complete the man, uh, really. And so, a beautiful statement here. Moving on to verse 18. If men gather gold and silver or any other beautiful thing, and then see a woman lovely in appearance and beauty, they let all those things go and gape at her, and with open mouths stare at her, and all prefer her to gold or silver or any other beautiful thing. No kidding. All you need to do is go back, men, to the time when you were courting your wives and you weren't married yet. And honestly, the only thing that mattered uh, was her. Now, for those of you who've been married, you know, honestly, for my marriage, that hasn't gone away. That is an awesome thing because you think of Proverbs, right? You think of the book of Proverbs and how, uh, Proverbs 31, and how our wives, these women, a Proverbs 31 woman is worth more than rubies than anything, all these things that the world covets and values, nothing compares to the love 
that a godly husband would have for his wife, either pre-marriage or even post. And so there's a lot of truth to what this guy says. Now moving on to the next verse, verse 20. A man leaves his own father who brought him up in his own country and clings to his wife. Now, here we get to the goods, if you will. The writer is quoting Genesis 2.24. That actually says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Okay, so here uh, we see he brings it to the table. But then he says this, and so we're going to get a little bit of commentary, if you will. With his wife, he ends his days with no thought of his father or his mother or his country. Now, that's an interesting statement. So he's kind of unpacking this whole notion of what it means to, uh, for a man to leave his father and his mother and cling or to be joined to his wife. What does that really mean? Well, this is what it talks about. He goes to his wife and him and his wife. He is with his wife to the end of the days. He's not necessarily with his parents living at home. But now all his affection, his focus, his concern, his responsibility, his commitment is to his wife. Now, this in no way means that a man stops honoring his mother and father. That never stops, not, not for a godly man. But all his attention and responsibility falls upon his wife. And so this is, this is important. If we're going to read Genesis 2.24, we're going to understand that marriage is to meos, that it is precious, that it is holy. And we look at how God created it in the backstory and to appreciate this this is something that needs to come to the table that you need to have now moving to verse 22 there's more therefore you must realize that women rule over you now i need to add this because he's not contradicting genesis whatever it is 316 where you have the authoritative structure established he's not doing away with that he's he's really making a notion of what the Apostle Paul himself made in 1 Corinthians, whether we're talking 1 Corinthians chapter 11, whether we're talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, in both places, in, in chapter 11, he talks about man isn't independent of women, nor woman of man. And so this is what the writer is trying to convey. He, he's trying to convey what Paul conveyed that uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul says, that a, a man doesn't have authority over his own body, but the woman does. And vice versa, a woman doesn't have authority over her body, but the man does. This is the mindset of, of, of what he's coming out. And so, therefore you must realize that women rule over you. Do you not labor and toil and bring everything and give it to the woman? Okay? And it's true. That's why a man goes out and labors, is to make sure that he provides for the woman. And the woman is to rest upon him and trust in him for this provision. Verse 25, we're going to drop down. A man loves his wife more than his father or his mother. And so that's an aspect that's fascinating. As a man is supposed to leave, he leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. This is a reality. He moves in with desperate love. Nothing takes precedence over this bride. And again, the this, this, this spiritual connotation is absolutely beautiful as well. When we know Yeshua, we are the apple of Yeshua's eye, as a wife is to be the apple of her husband's eye. And so beautiful uh, what we're covering. So as we look at this in Genesis 2.24, the Apocrypha helps us out a little bit in understanding what is really going on. Now, that being said, I want to share some statistics because here we can talk about this beautiful union of marriage, how it is precious, how its cost is worth far more than any value of anything of any value on the earth, whether silver, gold, rubies, whatever the case may be. When you have something that has been ordained by God, and that is this precious, rest assured, the enemy is coming. And he is coming hard to destroy it in every way he can. You know, this is something I think we forget. 
I think as we as believers, we can forget this. Even when there's friction, dangerous friction, in the home, we are not thinking spiritually minded. We're very much in the physical aspect at the time, whatever the issue might be. We might be angry. One side might be upset. Whatever the case is, uh, we, need to, we need to circle back. We need to step away. And we need to recognize, wow, the enemy is coming in hard here, and he's trying to take out our marriage. And so I want to share some statistics with you of how successful the devil has become in this country. We're actually told, and this is, this is by a, a law firm where I got these statistics, Wilkinson and Finkenbeiner. Every 13 seconds, there is one divorce in America. Now you think about that. If I do a 40, 45-minute message, that's like 200 uh, divorces. Every 13 seconds, a divorce is happening. I mean, when you tallied up at the end of the year, you're almost at 2.5 million divorces. That's in America alone. Now, you think about that. This is happening every year. How can we as a society sustain these kinds of numbers? Now, keep in mind, this is God's holy design. It is precious in His sight. How can we sustain such diabolical destruction? And my answer is you won't. I'm going to tell you that right now. If we knew no, no other sin existed, let's, just, let's pretend for a moment that we knew of no real other sins that existed, but this was it. This was the sin. I'm going to tell you, this is enough to take a country down with these kind of numbers in regard to uh, divorce. Absolutely terrifying. Moving to the next statistic here. If your parents married others after divorcing, you're 91% more likely to get divorced. That's crazy. 91% more likely to get divorced if your own parents married someone else after divorcing. Now, you can't help but think about Yeshua's statement in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, where he says, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he flip-flops it as you go on. He says, and whatever wife divorces her husband and marries another commits adultery. And so what we're reading here is if the parents literally go out and get remarried after divorcing, your numbers as children go off the charts in regard to your potential in getting a divorce. Now I ask you, when you see these kinds of numbers, these kinds of statistics, does it matter that a couple gets divorced? Does that have an impact past the immediate uh, circle, which would be the husband and wife themselves, which is it's always horrible. I, I don't know what divorce have you ever heard that was just so wonderful and delightful. Not by both parties. Two parties never come to the table with such joy and excitement. It's pain. It is suffering. Pain and suffering we were never meant to experience in this life. But this is what it is. But it doesn't stop there. It continues to affect the rest of the people. It continues to affect the children. I mean, this is where you get into even, we could talk, I don't want to go down this road, but generational curses. If marriage is a blessing, and it is, what is divorce? Divorce is a curse. And curses have implications. They have implications upon the children. And so you look at these statistics, it's, it is frightening. Uh, look at this one. According to Nicholas Wolfinger, in understanding the divorce cycle, okay, you know you have a problem in America when people are writing books about divorce cycles, right? I mean, this is, this is insane. The risk of divorce is 50% higher when one spouse comes from a divorced home 200% higher when both partners do. These numbers are frightening. 
50%. So if, if just one of the parents from one of the sides who's getting married comes in, they're 50% more likely to divorce, but 200%. If a husband and wife, husband comes from a divorced family, wife comes from a divorced family, 200% more likely to get a divorce. I think of that, and now I understand why every 13 seconds we have a divorce happening, that a, another marriage is being terminated. Look at this one. This one blows my mind as well. Over a 40-year period, 67%, almost 70% of first marriages terminate. In other words, we see an absolute trend right now that people are not finishing the race. We are seeing a trend that tells us people are thrown in the towel. They're giving up. They're not persevering. And I'm going to tell you, and this is, this is over, you know, looking at these statistics, that this is a reflection not just on the condition of this country. The, the condition of this country has come from the condition of this church and, and the church in this nation as a whole, the, all the various, whether we're talking Catholicism, whether we're talking Protestantism, the condition of the church has a direct impact on societal measures one of which is divorce. It will have an impact on marriage. You know, if the church in this country is strong and is going strong, it will have an impact on government. It will have an impact on marriages. It will have an impact on the educational system. None of which the church as a whole is really having an impact on. Incredible. Look at this, 15% of adult women in the United States are divorced or separated today, compared with less than 1% in 1920. We're in 15 times worse shape than we were in 1920. Things are not going well in this country. They're getting worse and worse and worse. Look at this next one. Pornography addiction was cited as a factor in 56%, over half of the divorces, according to a recent study. Isn't that interesting? You can't tell me pornography is harmless. You have no idea of the spiritual dimension you are entering, the demonic warfare that happens, the alteration, the fact that you are opening your temple up, for demons, that you are bringing curses on your marriage. I mean, this statistic doesn't lie. Pornography will absolutely affect your marriage. And anyone who is honest about it, knows anything about it, knows that it will rip your, your marriage to shred because you're given authority over your, to your marriage. You're given authority over to the demons to come in and to do what they will and wreak havoc. It's absolutely beyond from the pit of hell. You are engaging in demonic activity. And so, while pornography is absolutely destructive on every level, married or unmarried, know this, in regard to marriages, if one of the spouses even is involved in this, you're in trouble. And so, you know, pornography is, this is something that is beyond prevalent when you have outrageous numbers where a majority of pastors, as they're polling according to the polls, they're polling that a good chunk of the pastors in America view porn on a regular basis. Pastors, what does that mean for the rest of the congregants? How many are actively looking? Maybe they looked at it once, felt a little bit guilty, and then maybe one more time, but then they go to church that week. I mean, how many people are doing that? I mean, you have access to porn with one click of a mouse. We are in trouble in this nation. These things will not go unanswered. These things will have dramatic implications on how we function and whether we're blessed or whether we're cursed. And so you see this and you're just, I'm not surprised to see this statistic. 
I'm actually surprised that, at least according to this statistics, it's not even higher because I will tell you right now, if you're engaging in porn, you are absolutely 100% failing. You are not in the faith. Uh, you are deceived if you are engaging in pornography. And you 100% will not be blessed. And so it's an epic fail. And it's something that unfortunately is wreaking havoc on not just men, but also women. And it leads to all sorts of other sins. Going on to this next statistic, look at this. If your parents are happily married, you, your risk of divorce decreases by 14%. And so it goes the other way. And so you look at these statistics, you cannot, you cannot argue. There, there's no argument here. The holy institution of marriage, it's sacred. It has to be protected. You have to defend it. Men have to go into their homes and defend the sacred union. And the best way to do that is to get your house in order by praying over your family, by leading them in righteousness, by leading them in, 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 in devotions, by spending time with them, uh, to express the importance of biblical morality. Think about when a husband is loving his wife at home. The children are watching. If you're a husband and wife bickering, fighting all the time, saying horrible things to one another, tearing each other down, your kids see that. You're setting your kids up for failure. And God have mercy on that. That has no place in the faith, in a home of believers that call upon the name of Yeshua. We, we are supposed to walk in the joy, the blessing, the beauty of the Lord. And this is, you know, it's just, it, it's gut-wrenching to see everything's getting ripped apart. Everything is getting ripped apart. And, um, I mean, we need revival. We just do. Now, that being said, I want to take you to the 19th chapter of Matthew. Yeshua is actually being questioned about divorce. Let's take a peek at this in chapter 19, verse 3. We read, The Pharisees also came to Yeshua, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now, one thing that you need to understand here is that this was a real question. This was a real debate that existed in the first century between the house of Shammai and the house of Hillel. And so he's coming. How, you know, what, what side do you fall on, Yeshua? In essence, do you agree with Hillel? Do you agree with Shammai? And so let, let me just take you back. I'm going to take you to the, Minish, uh, the Mishnah briefly. And we read this. The house of Shammai say a man should divorce his wife only because he has found grounds for it in unchastity, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. Whereas the house of Hillel says, even if she spoiled his dish, since it is said, because he has found in her indecency in anything. And so, you have the house of Shammai, you have the house of Hillel, both quoting Deuteronomy 24. Okay, both quoting Deuteronomy 24, looking at, but they're looking at it from completely two different angles. Shammai says, no, you can't divorce your wife except for an actual sexual and moral situation. Okay, and, and the Hebrew word that's used in, in Deuteronomy 24 is erva or ervat, and it would support Shammai's position. Whereas Hillel, talk about a liberal interpretation here, which is interesting because Hillel, is total side note, Hillel usually falls in line of very conservative. He would fall into line with a lot of Yeshua's teachings, but not in this matter. In this regard, he has taken the most outrageous uh, liberal approach, saying, yeah, even if she burns my toast, uh, I have grounds, because that's indecent. That's erva, that it's, it's taking the term completely out of context. And, but this is what he's proposing. And so as, as we look at this in, in Matthew 19, uh, this debate, is it lawful for man to divorce his wife for any reason? Because Hillel essentially is saying, yeah, 
for any reason you you can divorce your wife she does something you know she trips and falls and you don't like it whatever she wears something you don't like divorce her so yeshua answers and he answered and said to them have you not read he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and so what's yeshua do oh yeah he goes back to genesis he goes back to creation at the very beginning what he designed and what we see expressed through Adam and Eve, right? And said, and, and, and here Yeshua is actually going to quote Genesis 2.24, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but, Besarachat, they're one flesh. Did you, and so Yeshua is like, did you, have you not read this? Have you not read this perfect plan that God designed? Really, it's a perfect love story. Do you not understand God's love story and how he's written it and how we're actually literally supposed to experience what he has written and what he has designed? I mean, it is, again, something magical happens with covenantal marriage where you were once identified as two before God, but then when you come together in that covenant, you become a chad. That's a, a spiritual mystery, if you will, as Paul would describe in Ephesians 5. Uh, but listen to what Yeshua says next. He says this, Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So this union of covenantal marriage is explicitly, again, let me hammer, point, hammer this point home, it is a thing of God. It is sanctified. It's holy. And you do not want to meddle with what God has designed. You don't want to go there. This is God's. Is God has joined them together. I mean, that's why I love that passage that the Lord brought Eve to Adam. He gave Eve to Adam. And every marriage that goes on from there, that enters into God's holy design, and they acknowledge, accept, and walk out. Covenantal marriage. They enter into a covenant with, with their spouse. That is God. That God is involved in that. And this is something that the enemy comes in and blinds you to this whole reality that God has done this, and that if you go against it, whether you're one of the spouses or you're just a friend on the outside, and, and you, you, this, one of the spouses is complaining to their friends, and their friends are hearing their woes, and then they just say, well, leave the worthless bum, or leave her, you know, get rid of her. Even in that context, you are coming against God. In that context, you're making yourself an adversary of God. You're destroying his work. Believe you me, don't think for one moment that you can come up against what God has created and attempt to go destroy this creation and walk away unharmed. It's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. You are messing with things you ought not to be messing with. And so this is, this is a concept that husbands and wives, we need to take to heart. We need to have this and to know this is the holy ordination of the Lord. I need to tremble and fear before him. God brought us together. So every married couple out there right now, you need to acknowledge it's not simply what happened is a product of flesh. Your covenantal marriage is a product of God. And that puts marriage in a completely different context. All right? And let me, let me jump to Malachi. Uh, just to show you how important this really is and what God thinks of divorce. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 13, we read this, and this is the second thing you do. Now, the first thing, I didn't put it up here, but the first thing that Israel did was they committed adultery against God. They were committing adultery against God by going after idols. And so God has two primary things he's really upset with in this passage. Number one, they're committing adultery against him. But then the second thing is, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears. 
with weeping and crying. Now, it's not with their tears. These are the tears of the Most High God. He is crushed. He is weeping, okay, and crying. So he does not regard uh, the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Now, the first thing that you need to recognize here is when the altar is shedding tears, this is the tears of God. The altar is symbolic. Now, keep in mind, and we've talked about this before, the altar is the very symbol of relationship. It's the conduit of what keeps man in relationship with God. Those offerings being offered, those animals being slain, those sin offerings being offered, the blood poured out. This is what keeps us in relationship. And it's, so it's the very symbol. It's the conduit of relationship. And when you see that it's being covered by the Lord with tears, you have a problem, a significant problem. Moving on to verse 14. Yet you say, for what reason? In other words, why is the altar shedding tears? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, of whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one? Isn't it interesting? When the Pharisee comes to Yeshua, can I divorce my wife? For any reason, Yeshua takes him back to the garden, takes him back to Genesis. Have you not heard that the two shall become echad, that they, they, they should become one? And here the Lord again is responding to Israel with the exact same phrase that Yeshua responded to the Pharisee. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Isn't that fascinating? So now here, the Lord is saying the exact same thing that all these statistics tell us today. That if you're coming from a divorced home, things are going to be bad. Curses are going to trickle down. There's a trickle-down effect. And the Lord is saying, I want holy matrimony. I want this sacred holy union to be just that, to be regarded as holy and not to be destroyed. Because when you destroy that, something can happen to the offspring. It's being said right here. I mean, this is frightening. The curses will go down. Moving on. Therefore, take heed to your spirit and let none deal treacherously with his wife, uh, with the wife of his youth. Be mindful, the Lord is saying, because they'll be hell to pay. Verse 16. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce. And you can read this in the Hebrew. It's just as strong, that word. Sene, he hates. God loathes it. If you have a couple engaging in divorce, or if you're somebody encouraging someone to get a divorce when there isn't legitimate grounds to do so, sexual immorality, you, again, are attempting to destroy that which God has built, you again are engaging in activity that God hates. Now, you don't see this term thrown around a lot. It's not used loosely in the context of God looking down upon his children. But you do find it elsewhere, like Psalm 5, God hates the wicked. Okay, you find this in Psalm 5. You can find it later on in Psalms as well. Uh, Psalm 7 is another great example, 7-11. You do not want to end up on this side of the road with something that the Lord despises so greatly and to know that you have chosen to be his villain. You've chosen to be his adversary. He hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Isn't that interesting? You go Again, going to the Hebrew, the term there for violence is Hamas. If where's the first time we see that? Oh, go back to Genesis 6. It's the very term used that the earth was filled with Hamas. So as God looks down on the earth, he's in agony because it's filled with violence. This was the reason God came down and destroyed the entire world. It was over this term Hamas. 
And yet, when people engage in divorce, we are told here that they cover their garment with that very term, with violence, with Hamas. So it covers the, the one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Now, I want to jump ahead uh, to Ecclesiastes. And well, I guess technically, if you're looking at it, jump back uh, to Ecclesiastes because it talks about garments. And this is interesting. Uh, let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Now, when you look at this, let your garments always be white, this is being, the statement's being made in the context of marriage. I mean, absolutely. And you're going to see this as we continue. It doesn't say let your garments be, you know, covered in Hamas. It's the opposite. So look at this in, in verse 9. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love. And so, as we say, we need to let our garments not be filled with or covered in Hamas. We need them, they need to be white. And the very next thing that's said, you better live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all the days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Now, I want you to see, and I highlighted this for a reason, the wife whom you love, the expectation that is placed upon righteous men of God is nothing else but for them to love their wife. There is nothing else. There's, there's no option B here. We are called to love our wives. Look at this statement by Paul. It is so powerful. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself to her. Now I ask you, could, could we possibly have any greater template or could the bar be set any higher for husbands than that of Yeshua? Absolutely not. He is the perfect temple. Look at how he has loved us. Look at how he has loved the church. That's where we as men need to step up and love our wives with that compassion, with that understanding, being long-suffering, being merciful, being caring. I mean, we could go on and on. This is what we are called to be if, in fact, we are godly men. There's, not, there's no option for, you know what, we're married, so I'll put up with her. If, if that's where you're at in your marriage, you need help. You need help. You need to get yourself in and start getting some counseling by qualified God-fearing counselors. You need to start setting up parameters in your own home, things to foster healthy marriage. And I'm going to tell you the ultimate thing is, is for both spouses to be pressing into the Lord and get serious about their faith. Because absent from that, you can't build a marriage any on any other foundation than Yeshua himself. It can't be done. So if your relationship, you may go through the motions, and you may be able to can even control your emotions for a time, but your flesh will get the better of you if you're not built on the rock. And it will be short-lived, and then you'll go right back to your nasty little cycle, which ultimately will lead to divorce. And so you got to step back, and you need to get yourself right with the Lord, and you need to encourage your spouse to do the same and press in on that level. And building upon Yeshua, you can achieve exactly what Paul is asking us to do, where husbands can step up and love their wives as Christ loved the church. He didn't say this because we couldn't do it. He says it because we can. The question is, is will you? Do you even want to do this? You have to desire it. And when you do desire the things of the Lord, it comes easy. You'll never convince me it comes hard for Yeshua to love us. It doesn't. He, it, 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 this is something, this is the most natural thing, most embedded thing, because God is love. He can't deny himself. It comes easy to him to love. It comes very hard 
for him when he has to chasten us and, and discipline us. That is what's difficult for the Lord. But to love, it's easy. And so we can absolutely step up and do this. Look at verse 28. We're going to drop down a little bit. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, this is important. What does he mean here? He who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, what it's saying is you're going to reap what you sow. If you truly care about your own well-being, you will act as Yeshua acts towards the church. You will love your spouse. That is what you will do. And let me put this into further context, what, what the Apostle Paul is conveying here. Uh, Peter says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. That is such a, think about that concept. Peter's recognizing that a husband and wife, they are heirs together. There's something deeply spiritual about marriage where you are heirs together in the grace of life. Why is it that Sarah is buried with Abraham? Why is it Leah is buried with, uh, with um, uh, Jacob? Why is it Rebecca's buried with Isaac? Because these things are, it is deeply spiritual. They are heirs together in the grace of life. But then it says that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, talk about putting this into perspective. Okay, so Paul just said husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. In other words, if I love my wife, I will be doing, bringing good upon myself. Peter confirms it here that if I don't love my wife, that I don't fulfill that obligation, woe is me because it can hinder my prayers. My prayers can, I will not have access to the throne room of God because of the way I'm treating my wife. There is nothing else that you could tell me that will scare me more than telling you, Daniel, you have no access to the throne where, where, where Jesus, Yeshua, is not going to hear you anymore. There's nothing in this world that could possibly terrify me more. That's the most important thing in my life. Anything that comes against my access to the throne room needs to be destroyed. Whatever, whatever sin it is. But in this instance, Peter's warning, well, you better be mindful. You better be mindful of how God looks at marriage and he's watching husbands. He's watching how you are governing your homes, whether wisely or foolishly, whether you have love for your wife or whether you're treating her like the off-scourging of filth. You're mistreating her, dishonoring her, and vice versa. God is watching the wives and whether they truly are honorable, whether they only have eyes for their husbands or whether they're fixed in some fantasy world where they were wish they were married to someone else that could provide more of the world's goods for them. Absolutely demonic. The Lord is watching us in how we walk out this most holy and sanctified thing, something that was ordained in the garden. Titus 2, 3, getting into the um, responsibility of the women, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teacher of good things, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. I mean, this is, this is what we are called to do. We are called to love. The husband's called to love the wife. The wife is called to love the husband. Oh, isn't that the way it's supposed to be in the relationship between Yeshua and the church, as expressed in Ephesians 5? Absolutely. Yeshua, we love him because he first loved us. It's a, the entire thing is built on love. And, and when I say love, I don't mean an emotion. I mean commitment, dedication, respect, honor, reverence. And yes, there will be times that you'll be overwhelmed in your heart taken, smitten, even with 
your spouse, and that's a beautiful thing. But just because you wake up one day and you, maybe husbands are not any longer attracted to their wives or the wives are just simply not attracted to the husbands anymore, based on that emotion, how I feel, well, I'm just going to go walking off into the sunset and see what else is available. Uh, you, will, you will face God for embracing fleshly emotions like that. It will not go unanswered. This is, this is the lie that the enemy says that you can, you know what, it's going to be okay. Everyone's getting divorced. Well, every 13 seconds, they're getting a divorce. And what it does is it strips our guards down. It takes the guard down. It may as well, everyone's doing it. And guess what? I haven't seen fire rain from heaven. So this is okay. I'm telling you right now, you don't want to play that game. You do not want to play that game with God. And it's unholy. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want the, the, the throne room of God to be closed to you? I mean, that's, that's someone that's not thinking clearly. And so we need to get our faculties about us. Amen? I want to take you back to the Apocrypha. Now, we're going to look at the book of Sirach, looking at almost probably some of my favorite books in the Apocrypha, Estrus and, and Sirach. And I want to take you there. It's talking about marriage, and it does it in the most beautiful, poetic way that it's almost captivating. And so I want to share this with you. In Sirach 25, verse 1, we read, I take pleasure in three things, and they are beautiful in the sight of God and of mortals. Agreement among brothers and sisters. So the first thing that the writer, he comes out and says, this, this is absolutely beautiful in the sight of God, and this is what I take pleasure in. It's in the unity of the brotherhood. So how blessed and how good it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Psalm 133, right? And then it goes on, it talks about how that activity is like the holy anointing oil running down the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, the beard of Aaron. I mean, that is beyond, as we would say, uh, precious, honorable, of great value. And so he lists this. And then the second thing he says is friendship among neighbors. That's the second thing. But look at the third thing. The third thing is a wife and a husband who live in harmony. This is precious. This is precious in his eyes. This is precious in the sight of God. All these things that he's listing, he recognizes as being precious in the sight of the Lord, right? And it's beautiful. And so when a husband and a wife are in harmony, which means when they are not in harmony, something is very, very wrong. And I'm going to tell you, you don't have to live in a very difficult marriage. If you both can step up, if a husband and wife can dedicate themselves to the Lord, it becomes more difficult, I realize, when one spouse is not trekking with the Lord. That is a different conversation. If both spouses are declaring, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Yeshua, well, now you need to come into this arena, and you need to start listening to the word of the Lord, and you need to just simply take, start taking the counsel of the Lord. Because you can have the most amazing marriage you could have ever dreamed of. But if you settle for anything less, the devil wins. And what my advice is don't settle for anything less than an absolutely radically awesome marriage. Don't settle. Go for it. Work for it. It is possible. In fact, to the Lord, it's his design. It comes easy. And so when you both are engaged with the Lord like that, man, it will come easy. It will be amazing. I'm telling you this. Now, uh, continuing on, verse 2, we're going to go to the polar opposite of, of this. I hate three kinds of people and loathe their manner of life. A pauper who boasts, a rich person, who lies, and look at this, an old fool who commits adultery. 
an old man going through his midlife crisis or whatever you have, and uh, you know the the old proverbial thing, and typically hooks up with with a woman about the age of his daughter, whatever the case may be, whether that's true or not, uh, in a lot of the circumstances is irrelevant. This was a problem even going back to before the first century, where this kind of sin was happening, and it is prevalent. It happens all the time. And, of course, everybody begins to gossip behind these people's backs who engage in this as, as, because it's scandalous. But understand, the Lord absolutely despises that activity. And the man has been completely blinded by sin. And don't think for a moment that man can drop to his knees and, and have any prayer answered unless that prayer is, Oh, God, forgive me. Forgive me for my foolishness of what I've done, because there's nothing but shame and contempt for a man that abandons his wife in that context and goes out to fornicate. It's absolutely diabolical, or a man that takes another man's wife. That is demonic on every level. Jumping ahead, chapter 26, verse 1, happy is the husband of a good wife. I want to show you this harmony. The number of his days will be doubled. A loyal wife, not a disloyal wife who has wandering eyes and goes wanton with the things of the world, but a loyal wife brings joy to her husband and he will complete his years in shalom. I mean, how this, you can have this, but if you settle for anything less than this, it's on you. This is, this is where marriage needs to be, biblically speaking. Now look at this. A good wife is a great blessing. She will be granted among, the, uh, granted among the blessings of the man who fears the Lord. Whether rich or poor, his heart is content, and at all times his face is cheerful. Isn't that this is This speaks to me. Because in a biblical level, when marriage is operating in the way God designed it, the things of the world are irrelevant because the husband and wife are enraptured with one another because they're enraptured with Yeshua. And when he's the foundation, you build that, that marriage on that rock and you pursue him and you pursue each other. There is absolute joy in bliss. This is, it's peace and shalom. And there's contentment. One of the most frightening things that you can see in a marriage is when one of the spouses are showing discontentment. When they are not content with their marriage, the blessing of their children, when they're not content in their situation, this is where it gets scary and Satan lures these people plays them, moves them like puppets on a string. It is so frightening to see that moment. That is, those are the moments where you see marriages that you would never thought possibly could terminate, terminate overnight so quickly. The enemy rushes in and absolutely destroys them, guts them from the inside and out because they're not content. They're not content because they're not in relationship with the Lord. And that's the problem. And they're not operating in the way God commanded them. But when you operate in that spirit of contentment, there is shalom. You don't have a wanton heart wanting to go here or there, or I need to, I need to possess this and that. And so this is definitely something uh, that, you know, hopefully... It's a message uh, that hits home to some people. If, if there's some of you struggling, maybe you're not. Maybe you know other couples that are struggling. Um, we need to encourage these people to have a revival in their marriage. We need to encourage them to have a revival in their relationship with the, with the Lord. You know, again, I, I tell you, show me a marriage that's struggling, and I will show you people that are struggling in their relationship with the Lord. It's an absolute guarantee. Without, there is no exception to that rule. 
Because again, we can't operate in love when we're not drawing from the well of love, uh, from Yeshua. Uh, let me take you to Proverbs 31. Who can find a virtuous wife for her worth is far above rubies. Verse 11, the heart of her husband safely trusts her. See, this is this beautiful harmony. So he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. This is what an amazing marriage will look like. Where it doesn't matter if it's a wife and it would also apply to the husband. Where they are doing to each other nothing but good. They're not doing evil, but they're doing good. This is how you bring shalom and joy into your home. And going back to Sirach 26, verse 13, a wife's charm delights her husband, and her uh, skill puts flesh on his bones, gives him life. When a wife has joy in the home and brings joy into the home, do you know what that does to the husband? Do you have any clue? It gives him life. He will feed on that, and he will get stronger and stronger. And then, of course, that brings more joy. A silent wife is a gift from the Lord, and nothing is so precious as her self-discipline. A modest wife, again, a modest wife, not having wanton eyes. A modest wife adds charm to charm, and no scales can weigh the value of her chastity. Like the uh, sun rising in the heights of the Lord, so is the beauty of a good wife and her well-ordered home. Absolutely, this is what our homes should look like. And we can't, we can't just say, well, I just didn't get dealt that hand. No, that means you're settling and you've given up. We have to strive for that marital, beautiful perfection of what God designed. We can do it. We can do it, absolutely, uh, without question. And so as we look at the writer of Hebrews, as he says, uh, marriage is honorable among all. You know, this information that we covered today, this is, this is what an honorable marriage looks like. Versus when we can also look at the polar opposite of that, uh, which we'll get more into that next week as we finish out this verse, uh, which talks about fornication, which talks about adultery, which is absolutely so prevalent. And so with that said, uh, we're going to close here today. Uh, again, I just want to personally thank you for joining. Um, get to work on your marriages. Enter into prayer uh, with your spouse. And do devotions, do study, read the Bible together, and do life together. Uh, this, is, this is what we were called to do. Amen. Bless you and shalom.